Hello and welcome once again to another episode of I've Always Wondered. I'm Will, I'm joined as ever on the other side of the internet by my brother James and this week we ask why do phrases that rhyme sound more believable? Yes we are talking about rhyming today. Now we all like to rhyme from time to time but James my question is to you what is your favourite rhyme? Is it kangaroo? Kangaroo? Yeah. What rhymes is kangaroo? Well, you. That was oh, my poem. Right. That was my poem. Oh, I introduced the question this week with, oh, a, with a poem. With a rhyme. No, it went right over my head, I'm afraid. I it, thought it was it, like orange that you can't it, rhyme anything with. Actually, you can rhyme something with orange. There's a hill in Wales called um, Blorange. Doesn't and there's count, a word. That's a made up word, isn't it? No, Blorange. It's the name of a hill in Wales. Put it in a sentence. I'm going to go and climb Blorange today. I knew you were going to say that. Um, well, because it's the only way you can use it. But uh, Gorringe is another one. Gorringe is a name. It's a surname. And also people have rhymed orange with something like door hinge. And they've slightly altered the word orange to make it sound more door hingey. So orange and door hinge. But no, that in fact, that would, that is an early rhyming fact. We've got a whole show of facts and you've, I've managed to slip one in on the sly. Oh, for the key needs out there, um, particularly off on your bingo list. Yeah. First known case of rhyming was in the 10th century BCE in a book of Chinese poetry called Xi Jing. However, rhyming was fairly uncommon. It occasionally appeared in Greek and Roman writing. Old English epics such as Beowulf used uh, alliteration to make it more memorable. Beowulf. I don't know why I feel like saying that. Uh, it just seems to fit somehow. It's uh, 3,182 lines long and wasn't written down until nearly 400 years after it was first told, which would be a nightmare for me, especially when I go shopping. I can barely remember what's on my list anyway. Maybe if, maybe if your shopping list was alliterative. Beowulf is memorable because it's alliterative. Your shopping list isn't. So maybe if you do it, no, it's not. Be able to remember it. Possibly. Um, the rhyming poem found in the Exeter book was one of the earliest examples of rhyming in English, and is believed to have been written somewhere between 960 and 990 CE. Now, rhyming is becoming more widespread after the Dark Ages, correlating in the improved literacy of the population. Doggerel is the name given to poetry where rhymes are clumsy or forced. The genuinely wonderful Scottish poet William McGonagall, who, interestingly enough, Professor McGonagall from the Harry Potter books is named after. It's one of those weird J.K. Rowling official Harry Potter canon where... Ronald Weasley! Yeah, where she said that um, Professor McGonagall, who's this incredibly clever character is related to this buffoon of a poet who couldn't write poetry. And she liked the interplay and she's put it into official canon that they are related. So the surname came from William McGonagall, which is another uh, slipping another fact in there. But he was a fact slip. But he was famed for his doggerel and his clumsy, clumsy poetry. And it's sort of given him... He sort of loved, really, because of it. Um, an example of his poetry is The Tay Bridge Disaster, which was a poem he wrote after 
a train disaster when the Tay Bridge collapsed, um, killing about 80 people. And it finishes with these lines. I must now conclude my lay by telling the world fearlessly, without the least dismay, that your central girders would not have given way, at least many sensible men do say, had they been supported on each side with buttresses, at least many sensible men confesses. For the stronger we our houses do build, the less chance we have of being killed. Which is just so, so lovely. It's just, you know, he was he was undeterred by his, you know, lack of Tennyson-esque ability and just kept writing. He wrote one and about... social ability as well. Like... <laughs> Some, and you know, 70, 80 odd people died, and he's just being like, Yeah, your bridge was, bridge was a bit poor, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. He also wrote a poem about a whale that rocked up near, near Dundee. It starts with, Twas in the month of December and the year 1883 that a monster whale came to Dundee. Fantastic. <laughs> Resolved for a few days to sport and play and devour the small fishes in the silvery tay. It's wonderful. Excellent. That's, That's clumsy, forced poetry. A bit like when I rhyme, um, but rhyming isn't always that clumsy. Um, it's actually especially common in advertising, and it works pretty well. In the feature that raised this question, the aphorism. Aphorisms are seen as observations and advice about life. They include the famous, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, out of sight, out of mind, and the absence makes the heart grow fonder. They appear to be an age-old wisdom, something that your grandmother have told you when you were out before, but in reality, they're broad generalisations and pretty much a load of nonsense. Um, it's proved by the last two, which are its act opposite. Yeah, I think if you know, if you say out of sight, out of mind, that means when you're not seeing something, you're not thinking about it. But yeah. then the other one, which is absence makes the heart grow fonder, which is when you can't see it, you are thinking about it and you're growing more fond of it. So the fact that they both exist as well-known aphorisms that people believe surely proves that they're nonsense and not really true because they are polar opposites. However, they are very liked. A lot of people use them. And one of the reasons why they're so common and so uh, why so many people believe that they are true is because they're familiar. So McGlone and Necker in 1998 wrote a paper and they found that American students judged familiar aphorisms such as opposites attract to be more accurate than a novel equivalent. People of divergent interests and personalities are drawn together, which means opposites attract. But the people in the study thought that doesn't that, that, that isn't novel. as true yeah. as the aphorism is. And Hasha et al. in 1977 found that um, the more unsubstantiated statements are repeated, they get rated as being more truthful. Repetition increases familiarity. And familiarity improves processing speed. And this more fluent processing of the aphorism makes people think, well, it must be true. You know, I'm, I'm not questioning it. And this is what is called the illusory truth. I think that fits definitely where, the, you know, the more, the more you say something, the more you, it's believed in generally. But aphorisms um, will also use the tricks of poetry to give statements an aesthetic pleasure. Rhyming is crucial to this. For example, consider the difference between a novel aphorism, variety prevents satiety, compared to a variation prevents satiety. Which one 
sounds nicer, is more aesthetically pleasing, which, you know, gives that nice ring to the ear, despite both being absolute nonsense. Yeah, the the fact that it rhymes makes it feel more comforting. Mm. McGlone and Toffeebash in 2000 asked participants to judge novel rhyming and non-rhyming aphorisms on how accurate they are about human behaviour. Aphorisms that rhymed are ju- were judged to be more truthful than their non-rhyming counterparts. So they gave them something like, woes unite foes and woes unite enemies. And they thought, oh, woes unite, woes unite foes. Yeah, that's, that's really accurate of human behaviour. And woes unite enemies was judged as less accurate. Like familiarity, rhyming appears to help with the processing speed. And this perceived increase in fluency is associated with truthfulness. So that is why these rhyming aphorisms are so popular. They, you know, their their popularity breeds itself. The more people know about them, the more truthful they sound. And also the fact that they rhyme gives it that cosy, aesthetically pleasing form. I think the key thing to remember here is just how your brain is so so advanced and you know we we barely know the surface of how our heads work and why our brains like patterns um but have you seen the um the experiment where you if you sort of skim read it and you just put the first two letters of a, the first letter and the last letter of the word and the rest of the word is jumbled but the yeah. brain still reads it that was yeah. a piece of research done at cambridge uni and there is something about it. I can't remember what, but I remember being in a lecture about this and it it was sort of a trick. It's not really the case. The form that they used is easier to read. It's not the case with everything. I'm now reading on the screen something that says, and it's all jumbled up, the middle of the words, as you say, the first and last is the same, but the rest is jumbled. It doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word are. The only important thing is that the first and last letter be at the right place. And they've jumbled it all up. This person says, this is clearly wrong. For instance, compare the following three sentences. This doesn't work for podcasts because you can't read it. But the vehicle exploded at a, and now I'm beginning to struggle. There's a word here that is P-L-O-C-I-E. Oh, it's police. You've got to really work and compute that. <laughs> it's not immediate. Um, all three sentences were randomised according to the rule described um, in the meme because this was originally from a meme. Essentially, the meme was they they gave you a sentence and it was constructed that you were able to read it. And everyone right, was like, okay. oh, oh, I've read this sentence. It must be the case with absolutely everything, that you only need the first and last letter. No, that sentence that they gave you... It was created that way. Some clever linguists yeah. set it up and it became a huge internet sensation. It's not actually the case. As I'm, the doctor was admitted with the... Uh, M-A-G-L-T-H-E-U-A-N-S-R. No, absolutely nothing there. I can't even work it out. But you're right. The brain, the, how the brain processes language is fascinating. Could we go back for a moment to uh, William McGonagall, please? Oh, I'm always willing to go back to William McGonagall. Because we, we read we read his Tabridge, the bit, a bit of his Tabridge poem, and I do urge you to read it because although... It is sort of hilariously bad. It is a nice poem. And as you say, when you said, you know, it being that lack of judgment of whether, you know, 
80 people had just died in a terrible accident and he wrote this poem which he thought was an honour to it and it's one of the reasons why some people think that he might have had uh, some degree of autism where you have that inability to judge what's right and what's not yeah. and there are, more, there are more examples of this from his life he thought if he's going to succeed as a poet he needs a patron so he wrote, he wrote to Queen Victoria and one of Queen Victoria's aides, a royal functionary, sent him a rejection letter saying, thank you for the interest, but unfortunately the Queen's got, um, you know, the Poet Laureate, just a general, general rejection letter. McGonagall took the interest from this as praise for his work and he continued writing poetry. And there was one point the Queen had gone up to Balmoral and he thought, oh, I'm going to go and perform. The, I'm going to go and perform for the Queen. She sent me this letter saying, thank you for the interest. Thank you for. Thank you. Thank you. But no, thank you. Yeah. She sent me this letter. She wants me to perform. So he walked from Dundee to Balmoral, about 60 miles over mountains. And he got to Balmoral and he got to the guards and he said, um, I'm the Queen's poet. I'd like to perform. And the guards turned them turned him away, and he showed him he showed them this letter, and they said, "No, the Queen's poet is Alfred Lord Tennyson. Um, we can't let you in." And just turned him away. And later on in his life, he received a letter from somebody claiming to be the King of Burma, and he was informed that the Queen had knighted him as William Topaz McGonagall, Grand Knight of the Holy Order of the White Elephant of Burma. That was clearly made up it was clearly a hoax but he took it as real and from then on all of the poems he wrote and all of his official documentation he signed himself as sir william topaz mcgonagall knight of the white elephant burma you know he just has this wonderful just this wonderfulness about him where regardless of what people thought and regardless of the of the heckling he received and the hatred he received after he wrote that poem about the whale he was declared as the worst poet in britain and he just kept going and he was buried in an unmarked grave in edinburgh it is now marked with a poem in honor of him written with a dog roll form it says william mcgonagall poet and tradition I am your gracious majesty, ever faithful to thee. William McGonagall, the poor poet that lives in Dundee. <laughs> Outstanding. It's wonderful, isn't it? I, I'm such a fan of him. And no matter what you think of his poetry, just praise his willingness to just keep going. His doggedness, yeah. His doggedness. He's remarkable, remarkable man. So I hope we have answered some of the questions you might have had about uh, rhyming and aphorisms. If you've got any questions that you want to ask us, you can always tweet us. Our Twitter handle is alwayswonderpod. And if you're not a fan of social media, you can always send us an email. alwayswonderpod at gmail.com. 